0: Welcome back to the Rethink It! Podcast. Um, in this episode, we are going to rethink or maybe disrupt your thinking about how we manage anxiety and other mental health issues. I am so excited to be joined today by another medical colleague, uh, Nicole Lamberson, a PA who personally experienced the effects of being medicated for anxiety. Her experience will absolutely give you pause. When it comes to passively accepting the standard medical therapies offered for common experiences of grief, depression, anxiety, um, maybe even brain fog, maybe even fatigue. It might be news to you that many of those medications commonly prescribed for this issue can lead to serious long-term issues with the nervous system and brain function. Although we do have a good deal of research demonstrating the negative impact of these drugs, we are yet to fully appreciate the long-term brain health risks. There's this quiet pandemic going on of over-prescribing when it comes to psychiatric medications. My biggest concern, and I mentioned it in this podcast, is that we're prescribing medications to younger and younger patients whose brains are not yet fully developed. I want you to look at just a few statistics. Number one, did you know that almost 10%, actually it's, it's a known 10% of children are pre- being prescribed an antipsychotic medication. So that's sort of a group category of a bunch of different drugs. A third of children ages 12 to 18 are ant- on antidepressants. That's 33% of the children out there in the high schools are on an antidepressant. And 43% of um, young adults ages 19 to 21, remember the brain's not developed, 25, are on those same antidepressants. That's almost half. That's a lot of prescriptions of antidepressants. Did you know that that antidepressant prescriptions have increased 35% in the last six years and that 8.6 million patients are currently on them? Did you know that 19% of the population has been diagnosed with anxiety and has been prescribed medications for it? And most importantly, did you know that most prescribing providers have not been trained to safely withdraw a patient from these medications and that the risk of rapid uncontrolled withdrawal can lead to severe life-threatening side effects. That's a really important point that we we talk about in this podcast. So in this episode, we are gonna talk about some of the common experiences that patients have when they are being prescribed antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. We're gonna discuss the challenges around even identifying the real cause of, what, of ongoing mental health challenges, namely, prescriptions. <laughs> the best part of this episode is that we will be providing a host of resources for you. Of course, they're always going to be in the show notes. If you're on our mailing, you're going to get an email with all the links directly to your inbox. So make sure that you check our, our website, um, beyondbrainhealth.com, beyond And um subscribe to the newsletter so you can get those resources directly to your inbox and put a star on them or remember them if you need them. Um, So our guest, Nicole, is a physician assistant residing in Virginia, and she practiced in urgent care and occupational uh, medicine until a severe illness from benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome left her unable to work. One of the highlights of this episode is the abundance of resources that we're gonna offer you and that we offer to help people struggling with symptoms related to the overprescribing of psychiatric medications. So make sure to tune in. Um, in 2005, Nicole was prescribed Xanax um, for work-related stress. And over the course of five years, she developed many classic symptoms of benzodiazepine tolerance. Um, including interdose withdrawal, and we'll talk about what that is. Um, and and she ultimately saw multiple psychiatrics and was misdiagnosed with mental illness. This resulted in being prescribed sort of a polypharmacy basket of medications to treat um, the troubling symptoms of tolerance, um, including two benzodiazepines. She was on a Z drug, a stimulant, an antidepressant, and an antipsychotic. We do talk a little bit about those categories of drugs a little bit in the podcast so if you don't know what those are we'll talk about that and help you (laughs) demystify that a bit but in late 2010 after discovering a magazine article it was an article that was written by a journalist who had similar experience with his prescribed benzodiazepine prescription um she was prompted to research further and made the connection between her own troubling symptoms and the medications and this followed by her immediate decision to withdraw so in hopes of receiving professional support to safely withdraw from a myriad of the myriad of medications that she was on she entered a detox center but unfortunately this led her to be negligently cold turkey removed from the medications so she was rapidly withdrawn from all of them and And that's the not preferred way to do it. Um, The preferred way would be a slow, safe, taper dose. And we will talk about that as well. So tune in. You're going to get a lot of information from this podcast. Ultimately, um, the result of her cold turkey withdrawal was that she had severe protracted withdrawal symptoms that persist to this day. This experience really motivated Nicole to co-found what is called the Withdrawal Project, the link will be in the bio, and it's a living library of some of the most responsible risk-reducing ways to taper off um, and heal from the effects of psychiatric drugs. She serves on the Medical Board Advisory Board for the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition and is a founding member of the Benzodiazepine Action Work Group of the Colorado Consortium, and she's an, an associate uh, of the International Institute of Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. So she's she's put her experience to good use um, for the benefit of others, um, as many of our guests often do. You might see a theme of that, that people have gone through a hard time and now they're blessing the world with their experience, um, hoping to help others through that process. Um, so Nicole is head of marketing, distribution, and outreach for a documentary that I really, really encourage you guys to watch is called medicating normal it was seen on pbs several years ago and she hosts a series of facebook lives which helps gain gain extensive um she she used that experience to gain um extensive knowledge from interviewing dozens of people who are both experts in the field of psychiatry and also survivors so she is just very well-rounded in this area. Nicole currently serves on the American Society of Addiction Medicine's patient panel, and that, that's advising on the development of a clinical practice guideline on the safe tapering of benzodiazepines, um, which we're hoping the FDA will approve. So in addition to participating in the research, some of which is ongoing, she writes and appears on podcasts and other outlets like this to share her story and educate people like you um, on these critical issues so I am very excited to have her on today I hope you guys enjoy this podcast and thanks for joining us well Nicole I'm so excited to have you here on the rethink it podcast with me um, it is this topic is absolutely a topic that we need to rethink it demands uh, patient and practitioners alike to rethink how we press, uh, approach stress mental health all of it so I'm just thrilled to connect with you um, and share the work that you're doing with our audience can you start by sharing a little bit about your story and how you started this advocacy work that you're doing now
1: sure thanks so much for having me Um, yeah so whenever somebody asks me to tell my story I'm like oh my gosh it's so long but I'll try to like you know make it shorter so that we can just kind of get to the point but back in the 2000s the early 2000s I had graduated from PA school and I was in my mid-20s at the time so young for starting a career like that and like most people who are starting a new job um i had stress you know i was uh having a bad day at work i had started this new job um straight out of pa school and i think i you know probably wasn't taking the best care of my body i think you know that's a whole topic in itself like what Mm -hmm. we teach young people about health and like how to care for yourself you know we don't (laughs) exactly (laughs) what we don't teach yeah yeah yeah. Um, And just, you know, eating the Atkins diet, which I really didn't need to be dieting, and all of that aspartame, I think, at the time was not helping. Oh, wow. Um, And so I uh, accepted a prescription from one of the physicians that I worked for in the practice where I was just starting out. And he was like, oh, you don't need to go home, you know, because I had asked to leave. I felt really bad that day. And he said, oh, it's just stress, you know, take, mm-hmm. uh, take this Xanax. Yeah, It'll yeah. help you <clears throat> with stress. And I don't know about you, but looking back in my PA training, I didn't have any information about benzodiazepines, specifically about the risk of physical dependence and withdrawal mm-hmm. syndromes. I mean, I knew yeah. they could cause seizures. Right. Um, all
0: I knew was that it was like, oh, my gosh, when you withdraw the, from these things, like, these are serious. You seriously have to pay attention. I, f- I remember categorizing it sort of with alcohol, like, I- I- if you withdraw too quickly, you're going to have a seizure and you need to do it in a, in a hospital <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or something like that. But that's about it. I didn't really know about dependence at all.
1: Yeah, it was, there was no, it was
0: definitely something that was like this is what we have for anxiety and
1: yeah, yeah. no tech you know no training or technical details on like okay if you get someone physically dependent on these like here's how you get them off you mm-hmm. know slowly Absolutely. over many months to years they need to taper in mm-hmm. uh, you know stepwise fashion mm-hmm. and like you we can talk about language because I think that's a huge part of what's happening and why this is causing so many problems um, is I had them in this box of you know if you read the label back then it's since been updated by the FDA but uh, may cause addiction right and so I thought to myself well I'm not abusing them I'm taking them as prescribed the doctors Mm. giving them to me so I'm that's not that's not relevant to me right know. I didn't understand what physical dependence was, that you were at risk for it just by exposing your body to the substance right. in a prescribed way every day. Right. Well,
0: prescription kind of gives you the sense of a false sense of safety, like a, a medically trained provider just gave me something that they understand. They've learned all about it, right? This, mm-hmm. I should trust this so it's safe. It's a prescribed substance. It's a false sense. Yeah, Security. totally,
1: totally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had just graduated PA school, and I was, like, proud of my profession and thought, sure. like, PAs and doctors and nurse practitioners and medical people, like, we only help. We want to help people. Right. I had a physician for a dad, and, you know, girls, and your dad, he's, like, your hero, right. you know? Yep. And I thought doctors are... Mm-hmm. gods they exact mm-hmm. cures you know yeah. and yeah so i think my thinking i was so naive you know mm-hmm. and just fresh and new um so i started within a couple of months in hindsight i didn't understand at the time what was happening i started developing adverse drug effects which are classic for benzodiazepines which is like inner dose withdrawal and tolerance type problems what's the
0: Inner dose withdrawal just kind of demystify that and i mean i think we can some people can pick it up but maybe it's
1: just language that somebody's never heard before (laughs) okay and i it's good to explain it because if someone else is having it maybe you can recognize it sooner Mm -hmm. than i did Mm -hmm. but basically especially with short-acting benzos but even the long-acting ones uh you know, your, your body, as soon as you start ingesting the chemical, is trying to find a workaround. It do, it's like, oh, you've given me some, you know, substance and you're, you're tranquilizing me. So it's trying to speed up and sort of get around the chemical and mm-hmm. tolerance develops. And one of the first signs of tolerance happening is the drug doesn't last as long uh, therapeutically as it did when you initially took it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And if you're still just giving it the same dose, which most people do because the doctor just keeps prescribing the same dose every time you go back for follow up, Mm -hmm. you're intolerant and you start to develop withdrawal symptoms while you're still on the drug, Mm
2: -hmm. like
1: in between doses. So before Mm -hmm. you're due for the next one, you might start getting like severe muscle spasms in your back, like really bad irritability, extreme anxiety, um, mm. just mm. like terrible physiological withdrawal. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that that's classic for this, you know, drug class, you you do what I did, which was I attributed it to myself. I thought something is wrong with me. You not getting- the only
0: one though. Yeah. The, the doctor does that too, doesn't it? I mean, I feel totally. like they, that you go and they're like, oh, you know, yeah. you're just a, you're just seeking now, you know, suddenly
1: you're the problem or
0: you're you're that you're seeking. And when you're just. Yeah. It, yeah. Place. It's one of
1: two things. You you are either a drug seeker. If you go back asking for a refill, even mm-hmm. though this is an expected, mm-hmm. um, you know, thing that this drug class causes. So mm-hmm. we should expect that this is going to happen if we keep somebody on for, um, you know, in some people, it happens in a week. It's on, on wow. the FDA label. Really? It can happen quickly. Yeah. Oh, my
0: goodness. So,
1: um, so it's either you are drug-seeking, even though you've only taken the medication as prescribed. So there's that language problem, again, between addiction and physical dependence, mm-hmm. where we need to, like, really know the difference. Right. Or they say it's up. You are either having a worsening of your underlying condition,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or you're you're developing a new so-called mental illness. Are mm-hmm. usually one of the three paths mm-hmm. that the clinician will take instead of door number four, which is right. the right answer, which is the drug you're taking is causing this, and we need to find a safe way to get you off of it.
0: Right. How, yeah. And it just yeah. I don't know why it doesn't even enter the mindset you know of the provider when somebody's on a prescription I mean some of the things I I guess I really got particularly focused on that when I started doing anesthesia like looking because you'd see these long drug lists and you're like well but this is this drug it causes what you're taking this drug for
1: (laughs) so are are we
0: on this list because of this one drug Where, where did this start you know I started examining drug lists a lot more as people came to us for anesthesia so it's like it was a really obvious pattern but I don't know that I would have thought that when I was early on practice practicing as a PA like and you know yeah uh, grow GYN health or urgent care or anything like that I don't think I would have thought about it so it is something that's an important point and um, to make for anybody who's a provider a nurse practitioner or PA who's listening because it needs to be on the radar, and and there needs to be some gentleness around it, too, because it's so quick to, it's so easy to blame maybe the patient or go put them in a category, and maybe not blame them, but put them in a category, you know, and then we treat them a little differently.
1: Yeah, And anyway, so that was where well, you were at with your dose yeah. withdrawal. Yeah, I was just going to say, too, and we have tools, you know, like you can use the um, what is it called? The PMP or whatever to look and see. uh, Is your patient just filling the prescription that you you prescribed and they Mm -hmm. have, you know, and then so more than likely. I mean, there's a study done um, by a government agency, actually, that showed that of. Benzodiazepine users, I think it was like 1.5 percent qualified for a substance use disorder diagnosis. So overwhelmingly, people who are having benzodiazepine problems are dealing with physical dependence. It's iatrogenic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just
0: gonna pause just for a second for the just for the lay people who may not even know what a benzodiazepine is, and just categorize that into names of drugs. just because i think that sometimes i take it for granted that people know what that is um and so if you're if you're listening you've never heard the term benzodiazepine it's a category of um drugs that are they act in a specific way and it's typically your ativan's your Xanax those are when somebody says ah just take a Xanax it's jokingly that's what they're talking about a benzodiazepine um am i missing any other
1: um well, C- and clonopin and valium, Librium. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. They usually end in PAM, PAM at the mm-hmm. end, like diazepam,
2: mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yep. Yeah. So those
0: are the substances we're talking about specifically um on the brain.
1: <clears throat> they can have
0: such a big effect. So um yeah. All right, sorry, sorry for the pause, but I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page and they're listening and they're going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what a benzodiazepine is, you know? Yeah. So, and I mean, a lot of obviously, people, c- you can Google it. I, I'm on this drug. Is this
2: a benzo, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. But a lot of people don't, too, and that's the problem. They just, you know, mm-hmm. we can get into it. But I think in, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes I made was just blindly kind of trusting and not researching, like, what is this drug? What am I taking? What does the right. FDA pamphlet say about it? You know, all right. of those things. So, Right. Um, yeah. So I started having adverse drug effects and this dose withdrawal stuff popping up, but I didn't recognize at the time that it was from the medication.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's when I entered the world of psychiatry. I started seeing a psychiatrist because mm. I was concerned, you know, cr- you know, really bad anxiety, agitation. I had some, you know, suicidal ideation popping in. Mm. And I was like, what is happening to right. me? You know,
0: was um, at this point before that, were you just seeing an, primary care or was it still just a prescription from your colleague or you know
1: yeah just I I mean it's all kind of You know, it was so many years ago that it all kind of runs together. And I've seen so many doctors in the process of trying to undo this (laughs) cobweb that I got caught in that I can't remember every single, you know, detail, but yeah, I think it was, I mean, it was quick after I got prescribed like three months or something. And then I was seeing a psychiatrist. So, wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you enter the world of psychiatry. That's a whole new world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so um, inter polypharmacy which is mm-hmm. a lot of what happens because like I said most practitioners don't pick door number four and they don't identify this mm-hmm. new drug you're taking is probably the cause of what you're going through let's taper you off of it bring mm-hmm. you back to baseline instead it was <clears throat> you know I think you have mental illness um, mm-hmm. and we need to add more medication mm. so over the course of the next 5 years i saw this a psychiatrist who just medicated me into like a chemical soup wow. and each new drug was to to treat the symptoms of the drug prior mm-hmm. you know very typical uh what's called a prescribing cascade
2: mhm um mm-hmm
1: and so i by the end of five years i was on clonopin which is also a benzo so i was taking Mm. two benzos Mm. xanax and and clonopin uh i guess those were so sedating and causing me so much depression that she tried ssris and snris which i reacted poorly to how so and i just like more agitation um Mm. you know more anxiety and that's actually pretty common um Mm. if you hang out in any of the online support groups for people trying to get off of these medications Mm -hmm. one thing that's commonly reported is kind of like once the nervous system is made unstable by Mm -hmm. exposure to the drugs and tolerance develops Mm -hmm. people don't tolerate drugs like they used to anymore they start Mm -hmm. having like way more adverse drug effects than they did in their past so yeah
0: even to non um non-psychiatric medications
1: yes even and even like household chemicals like all kinds of supplements Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. yeah so that makes sense um, so when the ssris didn't work she gave me adderall um And said, Oh, sometimes this one like really helps with mood. So now I'm on speed and a Mm -hmm. tranquilizer at the same time to Mm. to go back to your saying like looking at your the lists of drugs for your patients. Mm -hmm. Now I see like so many people are on drug cocktails that make zero sense at all. You know, and nobody's looking over them saying, like, what in the hell is this? You know,
0: I actually see because I work in the chronic fatigue space is kind of the typical I'm like so fatigued people come to my clinic and they've been on or they've potentially been on an a stimulant which to me when you put a, a 30 to 40 year old woman or man on a stimulant you're just asking them to have a heart attack because it's a stimulant it literally is a stimulant to the nervous system and it raises blood pressure and it raises catecholamines. and surprisingly shockingly they get anxious and then the next thing they know they're getting a prescription for xanax the opposite because they came Mm -hmm. in with fatigue so then and they couldn't concentrate and all this brain fog and so either one can lead to you know prescribing the for the symptoms or side effects of the drug which is you know something just for patients to pay attention to or clients or you to advocate for yourself like this can happen and it shouldn't there are other ways. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah.
1: So I also was then put on Remeron yeah. for appetite because I started losing a ton of weight because Adderall suppresses mm-hmm. your appetite. And then I stopped sleeping because Adderall <laughs> disrupts your sleep. And so I got mm-hmm. Ambien and Seroquel 25 milligrams at bedtime. So Good I'm on grief. six drugs uh, by the end. All, all just because of, of
0: all yeah. counteracting. The side effects of the,
1: <laughs> exactly. And I was sicker than I've ever been. I mean, I was just, I don't know how we call that medicine because <laughs> you're supposed to make people better. And I just mm-hmm. deteriorated more mm. and more, uh, over time until mm-hmm. I was basically not functioning. Mm. Yeah. And so how
0: did, um, how did that lead to, where you are now, I know you. So, Medicating Normal is the movie that you are involved in, um, you know, promoting. Um, I think you guys are still offering. It. I don't know if you're offering it behind the paywall or not, or but. Um, but I know it caught my attention several years ago. I was excited that you guys were still doing it because um, it kind of ca- caught my attention. And i was like i need to i need to look into that and i listened to i think it was a talk that you did on oh. facebook <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was like this is really intriguing i need to listen to this and then i got i don't know i think we moved 2020 i don't know <laughs> but um but it came back across my feed and i was like oh oh my gosh i really want to k- connect with this person so how did you know since this is a film that kind of exposes this all that we're talking about how did you get involved in the film and how did how did you move from being basically unable to function to what you do now
1: yeah so to kind of wrap up my story i you know i made a critical mistake once i figured out it was the drugs my dad is an anesthesiologist and so you know he made a living um altering people's brain chemistry to put them to sleep and he recognized in me what was happening um So the biggest mistake I made aside from ever taking these drugs in the first place was I went to a detox center because I thought, well, Mm -hmm. now that I've identified the problem, I need to get them out of my body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're taking psychiatric drugs and you're listening to this, do not go to detox. Do not stop taking them abruptly. They have to be tapered incredibly slowly and you have to listen to your body some people take months, other people take years to uh, taper in a way that they can mm-hmm. revert, you know slowly reverse the neuroadaptation that's occurred while mm-hmm. you were exposing your system to these medications.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And that goes for all of them, not just benzos, antidepressants cause withdrawal syndromes, antipsychotics. Mm-hmm. The stimulants right. can. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I detoxed and I g- developed a horrific withdrawal syndrome
2: mm-hmm.
1: um basically i think i damaged my brain and mm-hmm. my central nervous system coming off so rapidly because mm-hmm. i'm about 11 years off of all the medications now and i still have neurological mm-hmm. uh symptoms i'm way better way better than i mm-hmm. was in the beginning i mean i was rendered bedbound. i had bed sores i had dreadlocks in my hair from laying in bed for uh, so long. Mm, mm. Uh, I developed akathisia, which is a a movement disorder, uh, Mm. which is just horrible. Mm. Um, So it was, I don't know how else to say it, but like the worst suffering of, Never
0: experienced. Yeah,
1: I can't even put it into words. Mm-hmm. The people who have been through it know, but if you haven't experienced it, there's just no way to. It's beyond the realm of normal human experience. Mm-hmm. It was bad.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I needed to survive that, and I needed purpose. Uh, you know, I was, I had, I lost my career, I lost my health. All my friends kind of moved on with their lives and were functioning, and I was kind of holed up in a, in a room, waiting for my brain and nervous system to recover. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have help from mainstream, um, you know, medical care because nobody knew what this was. Nobody believed me. Mm-hmm. or when i went to the doctor they tried to prescribe more psychiatric <laughs> drugs and i'm like i literally <laughs> like just you know i i need to heal from this is mm-hmm. what's going on so mm-hmm. i've realized pretty quickly that i was i I was gonna have to save myself you know i was on my mm-hmm. own luckily there's a lot of groups online
2: mm-hmm.
1: of other patients who are going through this and mm-hmm. so I found lots of friends and support and, like, valuable information about my condition there. Mm -hmm. And that's where I also met the filmmakers of Medicating Normal. Mm. And they hired me on to help them with marketing and distribution. And, you know, having gone through this and seeing that it's this underground problem that nobody wants to address, Mm -hmm. I was like, I want to be a part of this because...
0: Well, I think the, the pro- part of the problem is you don't want <clears throat> to. We don't want to, you know, um, make uh, take away the trust people have with their physician. Mm-hmm. But the physician and the but the physician doesn't know, you know, and it's okay not to know if you, as long as you can accept that you don't know and, and seek to know. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, the it, the best providers if you don't know something will can will will seek out the answers they will seek out and have a humble heart and accept some the fact that there's no possible way that four years of medical school or you know 26 months of pa school <laughs> is going to give you all the information to to make all the right decisions for your patient on every drug and every single illness mm-hmm. so i think that it's just this thing where we don't you know we don't want to make doctors feel bad for what they don't know but we do need them to to know
1: <laughs> you yeah. know what i
0: mean yeah and we don't want and the po- population to hate their doctor either but no, you no, know, no.
1: But, but yeah want, it's not about oh, doctor yeah. bashing because honestly yeah. i think they are victims too right you know they are fed a bunch mm-hmm. of bad information there mm-hmm. are moneyed interests in keeping them ignorant yeah um and yeah i i think it's you know like i've Forgive the doctors who just don't know better. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know better. I went to PA school and didn't know better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The thing for me that's unforgivable is not being willing to learn and change your position. Like Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the best. Thing you can do is listen to your patients. They typically know what's happening to, and, and they're telling you. So listen; they're giving you valuable information.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There were so many doctors that I showed up with journal articles about the withdrawal syndromes, and they just wouldn't read them or completely dismissed me.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I did find a psychiatrist who was totally willing to educate herself, and she became like my biggest ally in this. So there mm-hmm. are good doctors out there who want to know better and do better. You just have to find them, you know.
0: They really go in hoping to, you know, heal patients. They go in hoping that this is the profession they chose that is going to give them the opportunity to help people. That's why I went to PA school. (laughs) Like That's why you went to PA school. That's why a lot of physicians go to medical school. Um, Sometimes they just don't realize that they're, maybe is a different way you know yeah then yeah
1: and you know we're all humans and guilty of something called cognitive dissonance you know Mm -hmm. like nobody wants to believe that everything that they were taught or believed is corrupt in some way or that they're causing harm like that's a really hard yeah pill to swallow right know, i uh, did a
0: podcast on um the what is the name of the I keep I want to say Beauchamp, but Beauchamp is the guy from the germ the terrain theory. Is a it's the guy who invented who really brought hand washing to the forefront. Gosh, what was his name? Austrian I, doctor. I can't remember. I didn't. Yeah, I can't either. But but he was trashed by his community because they were offended that that he would insinuate that. The doctors were responsible for pertussis fever. Like that was their fault that these mothers were dying after, you know, delivering babies because the doctors didn't wash their hands, and it was offensive. You know, mm-hmm. so it's that dissonance that you're talking about, and we don't want we don't want to be responsible for harm if we're our, our whole identity is surrounded with being somebody who's a healer. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, but well, and ig- on the patient. ignoring that, you know, yeah. we're we're gonna do more harm.
1: <laughs> so yep. And on the patient side, I don't think patient, like their dissonance, <clears throat> they don't want to know that a doctor can harm them so much. Like it's way easier to go through life thinking that there's a, a, some doctor who can fix everything, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But when you break it down and really look like medical errors were, like, I think the third leading cause of death in the United States mm-hmm. or something like it's not. The number super one cause safe. of
0: death is, is prescription overdose. Y- Yeah, number one, it's
1: it's not super safe to see (laughs) your doctor. You know, like too much medical care is is dangerous, it's a bad thing.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, I think something that I thought was interesting was that the film highlighted um, so much that was wrong with the way that we manage mental health, uh, grief, and sadness. Um, I think one of the psychiatrists interviewed said that the problem with um, the approach that we have is that we think that any form of discomfort that someone experiences needs to be alleviated by a drug. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's inter- uh, also kind of an interesting parallel because I just finished a podcast that's getting ready to release um, with an author I who wrote her wrote about her story coming through sobri- into sobriety. Um, she was a very functioning person, highly professional, and all this. But she used alcohol as a tool to ease her emotional discomfort in the same way <laughs> that these, you know, we're we're using drugs. You know, we're using it like nobody should feel any suffering at all. We're gonna we're gonna give you a pill, or we're gonna drink some. We're gonna drink a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> you know, either way, we're easing our discomfort and running away from it. Um, do you think there's any difference at all? Really, between those two, like prescribed drugs and any other form of, you know, easing pain. Okay. So alcohol, cocaine. Yeah, my answer is yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes and no, I think. You know, I'm not an addiction expert, but I think at the root of most of it is, you know, discomfort or like Mm -hmm. a desire to escape or not feel pain. And so Mm -hmm. in that sense, yeah, I think there wasn't much difference between me not wanting to feel anxiety and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe someone who's drinking alcohol. There's Mm -hmm. a great uh, physician out there um, for people listening. You should read her work. It's Dr. Joanna Moncrief. She's out of the UK. And she explains how we have a medical model of uh, drugs, Mm -hmm. which is essentially in, you know, she's presenting that it's the wrong one and that we should should have a drug theory, a drug centered theory of drugs, Mm -hmm. um, which is the correct one in her argument. And if you kind of just look at drugs as drugs across the board, you know, Mm -hmm. saying like, well, what we've done wrong is we've put them in categories saying like if the doctor gives you a medicine it's it's medicine it's good it's helpful mm-hmm. it never harms but if you get one sort of on the street or you're self-medicating
2: then mm-hmm. it's bad
1: it's a drug it's dangerous it's harmful
2: mm-hmm.
1: but if you just look at their mechanism of action you know they're all kind of similar and you kind of just mm-hmm. choose Drugs yeah. based on what they do. I mean, alcohol is good for mm-hmm. anxiety. So are benzodiazepines. But if you take them long term,
2: yep. all of the your
1: anxiety is like, going to come back and tenfold. Force. Yeah, tenfold. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where it's different, I think, is the uh, there's a concept by a psychiatrist called Dr. Peter Bregan called spellbinding, the spellbinding effect of psychiatric drugs. And he basically describes that people who are taking these medications kind of like slowly lose touch with the fact that they aren't functioning that well. They're actually getting worse. And it's probably because the substance, all the psych drugs are affecting your brain. The thing that you would use to realize that you're, you know. That's um, the,
0: that's really, that's the heartbreaking part. Like you're altering the, altering the, the, the motherboard. Yeah, the thing that's supposed to regulate and keep you safe, like and
1: and know ch- every
0: check and, yeah. and re- check, keep you in touch with reality. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this happens with psychiatric drugs and it's reinforced. And here's where the difference between the alcoholic, I think, and the person taking psych drugs comes in is that. When you go to the doctor and you say, I'm drinking away my woes, they don't say in their white coat with position of authority, like, keep drinking. That's Mm -hmm. a good thing. Or we need to up your dose of alcohol. Mm -hmm. When you're on psychiatric drugs, though, that is what you're told. We need to give you more. You have this condition that needs treated. You're doing Mm -hmm. the right thing. And so when I was taking psych meds, Uh, benzos that are just basically alcohol in pill form Mm -hmm. I thought I was helping myself it was presented to me in a way that it was treatment for Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. whereas when I drank alcohol or experimented with drugs in college I knew that -hmm. I was doing something risky and -hmm. dangerous you know so Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where it differs Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: you know that brings um makes me think of the, the, some of the, um, steps that you guys are taking and, and I'm putting a black box warning on some of those drugs and, and pushing for legislation to get, um, informed consent, um, to give those drugs. Isn't that what you guys are doing or fill me in on some of that?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the film was not involved in, um, the black box, but there are, um, the film Included some of the legislation that the patient advocates are trying to get uh, passed through in some different states. It was passed in Colorado. We're working on Massachusetts, um, basically to get informed consent, which all we're Mm -hmm. asking for is that patients are told or they have to sign something before being prescribed these drugs that alerts Mm -hmm. them to Mm -hmm. what can happen with long-term use. Mm -hmm. so that they can just make an informed choice we're not trying to take the drugs away from anybody you know Mm -hmm. i Mm -hmm. i'm not in the business of saying what someone should or should not be able to to take because you know i want benzos available if i ever need them for something you know like a Mm -hmm. one-off thing Mm -hmm. or end of life you know where they're Mm -hmm. appropriate but Mm -hmm. um there are nonprofits that exist that i am uh working with um that advocate you know Mm -hmm. for this type of informed consent and information Mm -hmm. for the patients uh one of them is benzodiazepine information coalition Mm -hmm. Um, and like i said there's tons of support groups out there for people also you know going through it
0: yeah and those links will be in the show notes so anybody's looking for that doesn't have to Gross to pull over on the side of the road and scribble that down, it's going to be available. So, um, yeah, those are those are, I'm so glad that you guys are doing that work. Um, I know that you're also involved in the, um, is it your nonprofit, the withdrawal project that kind of covers more than just the menzos or?
1: Yeah. So I co founded the withdrawal project, um, which is basically. A there's a companion guide there that we wrote with input from doctors, pharmacists, you know, people who are educated on psychiatric drug withdrawal and Mm -hmm. patient advocates, of course, um, because Mm -hmm. honestly, they they know more than most Mm -hmm. physicians because they've gone through it. And when you're stuck on a drug and you have to get off of it and your doctor doesn't know how. The patients, I mean, some of them are brilliant with the ways that they've come mm-hmm. up with to get themselves safely off of medication. So we took mm-hmm. all that information and put it in a really kind of user-friendly companion guide for discontinuing psychiatric drugs of all kinds. That's
0: amazing. That's wonderful.
1: To, yeah, teach people how to be your own best <laughs> advocate. Um, I mean, obviously, having a doctor on board is uh, important because you're going to need the prescription medication Mm -hmm. in order to taper it you have to have the drug but some people unfortunately don't have a doctor who knows how to do it and so they learn and they do it themselves you know that's amazing
0: and i think i mean i always say that the best doctor is you if you have the tools to advocate for yourself the best doctor is you you are the one experiencing the symptoms it's you who knows when you take x y and z that this is the response i have and it's you that can speak up for that and and maybe seek help from somebody or maybe make a different direction or ask the right question you know it's you 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 know your body better than your physician does you you don't fit into a mold and what i love in my practice is that i don't i don't put people in molds everybody's very very unique everybody's got a unique set of issues and and root cause problems and and we try to work with that specific uniqueness in, in our treatment um, protocols. Um, and I kind of want to shift gears a little bit um, but in that same vein because this podcast is really, it's a brain health podcast. Um, it, it's really geared to help motivated people who want to know how to biohack their brains or, and their health really to prevent dementia because dementia is a big thing. It's, it's outrageously Um, increasing it was a thing of like before the 19 early 1990s like late 1980s it was very rare that somebody truly had dementia like truly had it was not a very common diagnosis now it's extremely common every other person has dementia and it's a problem that's affecting people at younger and younger ages we're talking about 30 to 64 people are being diagnosed with dementia so I know that a lot of people who tune in here are interested in protecting their brain long term and so I want to kind of ask you like if you know and I didn't have the time to research I saw there's tons of research about the impacts of benzos and the psychiatric medications in the short term do you know of anything in the like the chronic effects of benzos long term
1: yeah so they have researched and as far as i know the dementia argument is still out there's lots of papers saying oh there's a link here and then there's lots of papers saying mm, we didn't really see a link and so people are kind of still arguing in the literature about that now i don't know how good the studies were that's another point that people have Mm -hmm. to sort of learn how to discern, like, what's a good study. How to read the good studies. (laughs) Exactly. You know,
0: it's really that bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. the verdict is out on that still. But even the fact that people are questioning, you know, I I can just say benzos were incredibly damaging to my brain. And uh, the brains of many, many thousands and thousands of other people that I've talked to who Mm -hmm. took them as far as cognition, memory, it destroyed my sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: sleep is fundamental. Okay, so let's just say if it destroys your sleep, we do know that a lack of sleep causes dementia. We know yeah. that. That's been proven. Like, yeah. that's in the medical literature. That doesn't even have to be a holistic doctor telling you that. I yeah. mean, with, I remember a study that came out just after I finished PA school, like 2007 or something. And it was talking about sleep apnea and how it's linked to dementia and stroke. And the reason was pathophysiologically because it disrupts your sleep. So Mm -hmm. we know that anything that disrupts your sleep can absolutely have an impact on your brain.
1: Yes, and there's actually a physician, uh, Dr. Daniel Kripke, K-R-I-P-K-E, who has done research on sleeping pills like Ambien, Lunesta. Those are called non-benzodiazepines or Z-drugs but they're incredibly similar in their mechanism of action to benzodiazepines. So actually when you read about how to taper benzos, there's a whole section in there about Ambien too because the withdrawal is so similar. Um, And anyway, Daniel Kripke made uh, his career on studying those and he's put out tons of papers about them, about how they um, increase the risk of um, Cancer and other problems because of you know essentially the lack of sleep that they mm-hmm. they disrupt your natural sleeping mm-hmm. uh, even though you think you're sleeping you're just
0: you're, you're not tranquil- yeah yeah you're not hating. you're not going into
1: REM essentially
0: right. the thing that we I thought was really interesting when I was kind of reading about alcohol and since benzos and alcohol sort of they're so similar
2: <laughs> yeah is
0: that alcohol actually stimulates you to a more you make you feel sleepy but you actually hit alpha waves which is the alertness your brain waves actually hit into go into a wave that is a more alert wave so when you go to sleep you're actually awake <laughs> it's yeah. like a crazy but and i think that's probably i'd love to see studies on how benzos work but that's just a theory yeah. on my end. there's I'm a sure chapter
1: in a book called why we sleep um, I forget who the author is, but he's like, it's a great book. Anyways, the whole chapter is summarizing like what benzos and sleeping pills do to our sleep. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of citations of Dr. Kripke's work in there and all the mm-hmm. harm, you know, mm-hmm. they can cause. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. you can you can find just like a short version of it in that book if you're looking mm-hmm. for the information.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um I thought it was also interesting. I went on to the, you know, your, um, the Benzo Coalition
2: website. Benzo <laughs> and
1: Information has, Coalition. It, yeah, You yeah. can call us BIC for short. BIC, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I liked all the um, research that they provided and there was so research that went all the way back to the 80s and showing essentially the ineffectiveness of Xanax. <laughs> so it's like compared to placebo, like at the eight week, like, like eight week point that they were less effective or actually worsened anxiety wasn't that something like that
1: yeah that study was actually done by the pharmaceutical companies i believe and it's it's in the film where there's a big you know infographic that explains Mm -hmm. the study Mm -hmm. but essentially what they did was uh they, in the study, it revealed that at, I think it was 14 weeks, people were far worse who were mm-hmm. on Xanax than their non drugged counterparts. Mm-hmm. But they were better in the very beginning. So, mm-hmm. what they did was they only reported the early mm-hmm. success in the mm-hmm. abstracts and everything. And so mm-hmm. it was, you know, told to the world that Xanax is this effective treatment mm-hmm. when it really. The study showed that it was harmful.
0: Yeah. The, you know, the biggest concern and one of the things that makes me really want to speak up loudly on this topic is the fact that it's being prescribed at younger and younger ages. I mean, like, I was looking it up. I just couldn't get over it. It was um, 10% of children are being prescribed antipsychotic medications. 10 10%? a third of all kids 12 to 18 are on an antidepressant a third (laughs) that's a lot 43 percent of people young adults 19 to 21 are on them Mm -hmm. that's almost half that's that's a that's an epidemic that's a problem and you know i it's particularly close to home for me because i have you know when i finished pa school i had a child and then i had another one and another one (laughs) but the one that i um had that was a baby basically he was two when i graduated pa school he was very very adhd and he had um i mean he was he was adhd he was very very busy now now i work with brain health i know that adhd i can i can really change direction very very quickly with environmental changes and very Specific supplementation, but I I looked back then. I looked for something that was like anything. Give me something that I can give my child besides what I was taught in PA school because I don't like those drugs. (laughs) I don't like what they say. I don't like the impact. I don't want to give them. But all the evidence based medicine reports were like, "Wow, that stuff doesn't really work." And you know, gold standard is a stimulant. So we had him taken a psychiatrist at four. Wow. he was diagnosed with adhd at four and a half and he was prescribed a stimulant and we went through him we went through all of them like he ended up finally settling at vivance um after losing weight drooling being catatonic all, all the things at such a young age and i i remember thinking this is can't be good for his brain but i don't know what else to do like my evidence-based medicine says this is the best we have and the doctor says it's okay to give it to him at this age so i guess well fast forward a few years and he was on prozac because he was having side effects at age eight and then fast forward a few more years and i had started to peel back some layers and I was starting to open up my, my understanding into holistic health and going into a lot more research in the natural health world. And I realized that there are options. i I found him finally. And after he'd been on medications for almost seven years. And so I, I approached him because now he's a adolescent and he, you know, I said, you know, I'd really like to get you off of these medications and you know but I know that they help you concentrate and I'm telling you like he was the classic that if he took his medications he would write neatly he would answer every question correctly he would do his school so clean if you took them off the next day it looked like a toddler did his school work it was it was insane it was just night and day and so I, I wanted his involvement in and mm-hmm. of course I didn't fully know how to do it but <laughs> But, you know, I knew he needed to come off of them. And um, ultimately, when he started to notice girls, he was like, yeah, so I'm not gaining any weight. (laughs) So can I come off my meds? So Mm -hmm.
2: at that point, we
0: finally did. One of the things that was concerning for me was when he was medicated, when he when the medicine would wear off, which was around three or four in the afternoon, he would have almost a rebound, like like a way worse. It was way worse than baseline adhd and impulsivity like the impulsivity was through the roof this was a very smart child he he's a very smart kid and he would i'd find him in the back of the corner playing with matches in the house at age 10 (laughs) like he knew not to do that right so it was like this kind of impulsivity that made no sense and so he finally came off of the medication slowly um and we did all the things diet and all the things and he he's functioning fully functioning now 10 years later doing just fine. But there was about a year into it after coming off, we caught this kid in a, in a bold faced lie like a bold faced lie. And he's not a kid that lies, so we were like, and it was an obviously like a really, really obvious lie. Why would you lie about and it was something about something really dumb, not even something worth lying about? And so, we my husband and I were both very confused, we're looking at each other like, what the, why did he lie about something so stupid? Why would he waste? punishment yeah you know so i finally gave it a day to calm down i asked him about it i know this kid was kind of 13 years old at the time you know he wasn't it's certainly not abstract thinking about the world around him or anything but i said well I, would you tell me why you would lie about something so dumb we caught you in that lie yesterday why would you do that and he said the inside of this statement, I want everybody just to pause and listen to this. This was a 13-year-old boy telling me exa- his experience. <laughs> he said, well, Mama, do you remember when I used to, you know, tear stuff up, you know, a couple of years ago and the light, the matches and do stupid stuff like that? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I got turned gray during that time. And he said, yeah, well, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't care. And I was like, huh okay he said i wanted to know because i was feeling different i wanted to know if i lied if i felt bad about it i I said now so it was like now i wanted to know i said so did you (laughs) you know he was like yeah i felt really bad about it
2: (laughs) so what
0: what it highlighted for me was just this amazing was it maybe that depersonalization that you were talking about when we talked earlier this week um like just to disconnect like with what he he knew was wrong but he just he just didn't he didn't feel about anything about it he didn't feel like it Mm -hmm. blunted his total effect those were the medications that he was on that's the first thing i went to i was like the only difference between now and then was that now he's not medicated Yeah. So they, I mean, profound,
1: that's how some of the drugs work. You know, we've been fed this lie, this chemical imbalance theory that the drugs are correcting some chemical imbalance. And that has since been disproven. Mm-hmm. So if, if anyone listening was told that and still believes it, there is no, you know, proof that there's a chemical imbalance and that the drug comes in and goes right to the imbalance and rebalances it no
2: um
1: you know the antidepressants are thought to work by some experts by numbing that's what they do is they suppress you know Mm -hmm. they numb and in the withdrawal syndromes too yeah the dissociation the depersonalization the derealization Mm -hmm. um you can feel completely numb and disconnected Mm -hmm. and so now you were talking about the numbers of people that are taking these medications i mean what is the cost of having so many numb people Mm -hmm. in our society you know who can't care or who don't care Mm -hmm. it's marriages lost friendships destroyed you know all kinds if you just yeah extrapolate it out it's huge and there's Mm -hmm. our we're not better for this if you look at like the rates of mental illness they since the introduction of medications, they've it's gone up, not mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And there's a book about that. It's called um, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. And he examines that very thing. Well, mm. if the drugs are working and they're so great, surely we should see it in the numbers that it's actually. We should have a utopian society. Yes. And it that's not what he found. Mm. <laughs> Spoiler. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. And that's that. That's that goes back to the whole thing that was highlighted i really that i really paid attention to in the movie that he you know that psychiatrist is saying like what we used to do for people with grief is walk with them Mm -hmm. um we would walk with them we would give them a space to talk we would do talk therapy we would hold their hand we would grieve with them but now we're just we're just medicating them and that's just it's an easy and it's a depersonalized way to to handle what is a normal response p t s d which was highlighted in that movie a lot that was another one close to home for me my you know my my family i have family members who are military and absolutely have p t s d and you know never took medications, praise the lord, but you know they they ha you have to grieve with them, you have to let them process mm-hmm. that what they experience which is hard and that most people don't experience. Um and I just think it's um it's a little it's a pretty impersonalized way it's a little less humane a little less um intimate to to just give people medications. Yeah, <laughs> you know.
1: Well, there's, I mean, it's multifaceted how we got here. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we have 10 minutes in a doctor's office. You can't possibly help mm-hmm. somebody in the way that you're talking about in 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. so medications are quick and easy and they just get the patient out the door, mm-hmm. but it doesn't solve the problem. You know, it's bandaid. Mm-hmm. It. so mm-hmm. many people who I interact with all the time who come off the med say like, all I did was kick the can down the road. Like the problem mm-hmm. is still there. Once I get off the drugs, I didn't deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I also think about things from just a basic perspective of like, if we're not meant to grieve or feel discomfort, why does our body do it? It's mm-hmm. obviously like the designed way that we're to. yeah designed. And so we're suppressing some natural thing. That's probably part of the mm-hmm. healing process, you know? Oh, yeah every once in a while i'm surprised like i interact with somebody and and on the note of grief i somehow was connected with somebody at a grief center at like some major hospital in the u.s and i can't remember which one i I wish i could but they said i don't accept patients for our grief program who are medicated because we can't treat them they're mm. numb they can't feel the feelings that they need to feel in order to get through the grief work <laughs> that we do what you yeah, know what like
0: that's interesting. really interesting that is yeah. interesting one of the things i tell my clients that i'm working with um because a lot of a lot of times they have you know underlying maybe chronic infections or something like that is that when we start to clear a lot of the the issues physically that will result in an emotional response and so I will I prepare them <laughs> that you may experience grief and it may be from something that you didn't expect so as you as your body heals my point is is that as your your emotions in your body are connected they don't they're not separate things and you know physical pain can lead to grief and grief can lead to physical pain and and they are the healing process is intertwined (laughs) with emotion. And numbing either of those is not the answer.
1: Yeah, yeah. People, you know, psychiatry likes to think like that we're divided. We have a head and a body, but that's Mm -hmm. not, you know, they, it all, Mm
2: -hmm. it's like
1: when I had a breakup in college and I broke out in hives from head to toe, you know, Mm -hmm. that that was emotion causing physical Mm -hmm. symptoms.
0: Right, exactly. Well, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Um, I'm glad that you're out there and advocating for patients and really educating medical providers. I I came away with more information from from the movie, from listening, you know, reading through the um, advocacy blogs that you sent, and just just talking to you. <laughs> it's been really helpful. So um, I just want to ask if there's any last things that you want to encourage you know people to. To do or any kind of advice you have that you want to leave the audience with
1: yeah I mean I think just to circle back uh, when you asked me or reached out to me and said asked if I wanted to come on and chat with you I was poking around on your page and stuff and saw that your tagline is the best doctor is you and I was like okay I'm going to talk to her because <laughs> I think looking back in my own story the mistake I made the biggest regret I had was giving away my agency to somebody else, a mm-hmm. physician, just walking in and being like, "Fix me," you know, as if I mm-hmm. didn't have any part in uh, the decision making or the research or, right. and and some of that was kind of, I guess, trained into me in PA school. Yeah, uh, they yeah, say to you is. like, "Don't don't be your own doctor," you know, they and do. Uh,
0: yeah, I think I remember the quote that they gave us was the father of of PA school what's this name he, they said the oh gosh now i can't remember the doctor's name is going to drive me crazy but <laughs> the okay. thing is he, he was uh, uh the, the the person who has who is his who is his own physician has a fool for a doctor or something like that it, and yeah. it's a famous quote by a physician and essentially i remember that same thing was kind of driven home to me like the doctor knows better evidence-based medicine yada 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 but i find that when people are engaged like, you shouldn't check. You're going to ask your mechanic about your car.
2: Oh, certainly. <laughs> you're gonna, he's yeah. going to give
0: you a laundry list, and you're going to go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> we, we're way more important than our, you know, Ford, you know, that we're sitting in the car. You know, we're, yeah. we're more valuable. We should absolutely be engaged. I think when we, sometimes when people become parents, maybe they start to see, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. This is not when it's not themselves, but somebody they love, they're like, wait a minute, I need to ask a question. Yeah, but it's, it's really important that you engage your own health um, because it, it's yours. And when yeah. it's gone, you said something really good in our conversation last time, and you said you don't have your health you don't have anything
1: (laughs) you have nothing when I got sick from this it was I had nothing it was all gone just Mm -hmm. stripped down bare to you you yourself in a room with nothing
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that it was like a profound lesson for me like Mm -hmm. holy crap Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. I have one body I have to care for it Mm -hmm. and you know I became this like I just learned everything I could learn about healing myself and eating properly and exercise and like All the things I wish we would teach young people, like I said in the beginning, about like how important it is to be healthy and care for yourself. Because when it's gone, you have nothing. Yeah, I
0: wish wish that was part of the pediatric education model. Like, okay, you're going to go home, you're doing your annual checkup, here are the things that you want to lifestyle things that we need to do (laughs) like here are the lifestyle approaches we do at 13 that we start giving them some guidance and letting them take some ownership and you know and just reiterating that at every annual (laughs) follow-up yeah that would be more valuable than the yep your heart and lungs everything's good you're right on on track
1: you know (laughs) like yeah give us some tools and it sounds so, you know, some people are like, oh, that's woo-woo and whatever, but it's not. I mean, it you know, it takes work. Most things worth having take work, you know, mm-hmm. but just even when I changed my diet, I stopped biting my fingernails for the first time in my life. Like, mm-hmm. these things do impact your mental health, you know? Yeah. Think about how, like, agitated and whatever you get when you haven't eaten, you know? Oh, yeah. And then tell me, like, your diet doesn't affect your mood. Right. <laughs> it's all... <laughs> You know, good point. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's such a true statement right there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I guess for patients, you know, advocate for yourself, you can fire your doctor if it's not Mm -hmm. working and you can research and find another one.
0: That's right. Um,
1: for people looking to get off psychiatric drugs, our nonprofits, we have a list of physicians who are, uh, educated and can help with psychiatric drug withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And then I guess my take home stuff for you know, medical people who are listening is, um, you know, believe your patients, listen to them, be willing to learn something new and read what they're presenting to you. Mm -hmm. And look at those medication lists, you know, Mm -hmm. that you and I were talking about in this conversation and Mm -hmm. ask, I mean, even just ask the patient, are you, are these working? Like, do you feel better? Cause sometimes they're like, no, I'm not, I don't even, you know, and then start examining, like, how is this polypharmacy affecting this person and would they be better if we could get them off some of this stuff slowly and you know over time and see like where are you at on three drugs instead of eight you know
0: yeah right yeah that's so true that was perfect way to finish our our conversation i just want to make sure everybody checks out the the um, film medicating normal and is it do we how do we get it? <laughs>
1: how do we it's get it? Basically, on any platform you can think of, just go searching for it. And by the time this is up, I think you should be able to watch it on YouTube for free as well. So,
0: free is always good. Yeah. <laughs> I love it's that.
1: been behind a paywall for a long time, but that's just how films are distributed. Yeah. And it takes time to be free. So,
0: and it's yeah. not a long film, but it, it is an intriguing, captivating, definitely um, relevant. It's so helpful. I think if you watch, it and you don't have an issue with benzos you can think of three people i did <laughs> when i was watching it i was like, and was yeah. like this to this person that person and this person <laughs> you know, they need yeah. to
1: hear this and it's not um, just benzos it's antidepressants it's stimulants i mean the film is about all psychiatric drugs because they all can they yeah. can all harm yeah. And, yeah and we're just now finishing up all of the foreign language versions so those are coming mm-hmm. soon for anybody who needs it oh, that's in good other languages as well oh, okay that's yeah. that's
0: really helpful, and as always, um, the links to um, the Withdrawal Project, BIC, um, Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, um, and even the Benzo Action, Benzodiazepine Action Work Group of Colorado. That all those links will be in the show notes, so people can find them. Um, so it's easy to access. Thank you so much for joining me. It's really great talk, I think, um, really relevant. And I hope that it gives people some hope and empowers them to be their best, be their own best doctor.
1: <laughs> I agree. Right? Thanks so much for having me and for the work that you do. It's really important. So,
0: yeah. Thank yeah. you. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. My hope is that this podcast has left you with a few new insights, hopefully some encouragement, and most importantly, some actionable steps forward toward healing your body and your brain. If you found this content helpful, please don't forget to give us a like and and share it with someone else who might benefit from it. Also, don't forget to follow us on our Instagram and Facebook pages. I love hearing from you guys. I look forward to spending some time with you again soon. So until then... Celebrate the small victories. There really is hope for lasting healing.